The United States failed to make the top bracket a full democracy. 48% of Latin Americans prefer democracy over authoritarianism. Only 48%. I you know. would think that would be 100%. A new report finds democracy is shrinking both in the U.S. and abroad. Democracy is dead. Okay, maybe it's not completely dead, but things are really not looking good for, well... The best system of large-scale governance anywhere. I feel like all I heard on the news, from my professors, from my friends and family, and from the Twitterverse, was that the golden age of democracy was going to die. Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Jinping, all strongmen, all tolling the death bells of the democratic process. And as I watched strongmen around the world rise to meet the new world order, it seemed that this sentiment was everything but sentiment. Power can be measured in countless ways. Money, territory, followers, resources, there's no true way to quantify it. Its true strength and ability to corrupt is only known to those who have it. And regardless of if that power resides in a person elected to a four-year term, the kid of a despot who will rule their nation eternally, or anyone else in between, it will always ultimately corrupt. When I came to this understanding, I realized that maybe democracy wasn't dying. Maybe it never actually lived. In our new chaotic world, all countries sit at a political impasse. This is practically the new Wild West in terms of governance, and revolution is on the horizon as many nations look over the precipice of sweeping political change. The COVID-19 pandemic created the environment for authoritarianism to flourish. People were begging for swift, immediate action. The central government, through unilateral executive order, was given the liberty to expand their reach and powers like never before. And instead of what they should have done, well... Coronavirus death toll in the United States is nearing 100,000. Local leaders 000. in Portland, Oregon, are calling for federal agents sent in response to a fight over post office funding with potential implications for the election is interfering with congressional President talks. President Trump to is choosing not to follow new federal guidelines that urge Americans to wear face coverings in public. You get the idea. This podcast is not designed to show you the horrors of authoritarianism or democracy, nor will it try to persuade you to rise up against your governments and national leaders. We've been given an opportunity. Go on. Just reach out and grab it. You and I are going to build an authoritarian state that will last a thousand generations. Or at least until I decide not to make any more episodes. I'm going to show you just how easy it is to become a god emperor, eternal leader, and national icon. Hopefully through this experiment you'll see how the global political leaders you know, and maybe love, are doing just that as we speak. As always. Unless you want to end up in The Hague or an international tribunal, do not try this at home. Welcome to the new age of government. Welcome to Authoritania. So why are we focusing on democracy for this episode? If we're a podcast about authoritarianism, what's the point of examining democracy? Well, statistically speaking, if you're listening to this, you are probably living in a democracy in decline. 
If not, that's great. Unless you live in an authoritarian state already, in which case I'm so sorry. But you're almost certainly living in a country with some significant problems. Even the most free countries abridge human rights sometimes, depending on the domestic policies they push into law. And because of this, it's certain that your country has a chance of becoming an authoritarian state. But isn't a democratic republic the most free setup for a government? It's unlikely that a strong liberal democracy could slip into a dictatorship without a coup or an armed revolution, right? Well, according to international relations scholars from around the world, liberal democracy is the most stable form of government. It discourages countries from going to war with other democracies and allows for a better environment for diplomacy to flourish. This fact is called the democratic peace theory, and it's basically the basis of the idea of liberalism in international studies, one of the largest ideas in the field. And while peace may flourish for years and even decades, a liberal democracy may not remain a democracy forever. So if you're going to begin your quest to set up your own authoritania, it's possible that you may have to start your quest in a democratic state. But that's okay. I mean, far more idiotic people than you have turned a democracy into a dictatorship. People like me from previous months, okay? Total control. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. You know what that is, right? All you have to do is achieve a couple of goals that, for the sake of entertainment, I'm going to call the three S's. Security, singularity, and sovereignty. Let me say that again, because you want to keep these words in your head throughout this podcast and all the episodes I make. Security, singularity, and sovereignty. You might already have an idea of what these look like, but I caution you. One of the more clever aspects of authoritarianism is its ability to manipulate words you think you know, and give them new ulterior definitions and messages that may not necessarily be what you think. To disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. We all know what happened on September 11th, 2001. I'm not going to go into details on one of the greatest modern American tragedies. However, not many people are really aware of the tragedy that took place just after. Just after 9-11, President George W. Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, and the Bush administration signed into law the U.S. Patriot Act. Among the mountains of regulations and codes it created and changed, it allowed for the indefinite detention of immigrants, the ability for law enforcement and government agencies to surveil citizens without warrants or probable cause. It allowed the National Security Administration and the FBI to use newfound abilities to track citizens online and over the phone. It also allowed for the search and investigation of private property without the consent or knowledge of the owner. Organizations like the ACLU have criticized the act for its violations of citizens' rights, and parts of the legislation have been overturned or allowed to expire simply because of their unconstitutionality. Despite these issues, the bill passed into law with only one dissenting vote in the U.S. Senate and with over two-thirds majority vote in the House of Representatives. A large number of Americans have expressed approval for the act, and it's been reauthorized a total of three times. So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. Critics maintain that the act was passed with such a lack of dissent because of growing concerns over national security, a term that had existed long before 2001, but invaded the collective consciousness of the political world like wildfire after the attacks. This new obsession manifested itself in the laws of countries around the world, who used the doctrine as an excuse to take more control over their citizens and abridge human rights. This phenomenon was dubbed securitization by international relations experts, and this idea persists to this very day. 
If you can frame an action as being necessary for the preservation of national or international security, you can pretty easily enjoy support for it, even if it's used to the extreme. You could suspend elections, like the Dominican Republic did in 1978. You could close your borders in Nigeria in 2019, restrict movement and trade North Korea pretty much all the time, all for the purposes of national security. I know that I brought up a lot of examples of Dominican Republic and Nigeria and North Korea, but each one of these has been done a little closer to home. You might even get a lot more support for these kinds of things than you anticipated. Border control in the European Union is a prime example, with many countries like authoritarian Hungary advocating for strict border controls to protect against terrorist threats from increased immigration from the Middle East and North Africa. Regardless, securitization is the best tool that you have in establishing your authoritania. And for the securitization measure to work, researchers have identified four things you need to know. One, you need someone who creates the securitization measure. They're usually a government authority or leader. It's probably going to be you. Number two, you need an existential threat that your citizens must be protected from. This could be anything from terrorist attacks, another country invading, etc. You get the idea. Number three, you need the idea, group, or system that is being threatened. This can usually be community, society, a certain ethnic group. Take your pick. They're all good. Number four. An audience to hear these threats, believe in their credibility as a threat, and accept the securitization measure as necessary for their well-being. If you don't have number four, you might as well toss the rest in the garbage. But if you have all four of these things, you can do anything. You can even declare martial law. This brings us to our second step in transforming your once beautiful democracy into the authoritarian state you've always dreamt of, gaining unitary rule. If you implemented your securitization steps properly, this and the final third step should be relatively easy. Unitary states, that is a government where the central government is wholly supreme, are actually very common in our modern world. According to the United Nations, out of their 193 member states, 166 have unitary governments. And just so we're clear, a unitary state is not necessarily authoritarian at its core. Western-style democracies like the United Kingdom, Denmark, France, Sweden, and others are all unitary, but not authoritarian, states. A centralized unitary state, however, can easily become authoritarian with just a few adjustments or one big push. On the evening of July 15, 2016, a coup d'etat was launched in major cities across the Republic of Turkey in an attempt to overthrow President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. His party, the AKP, has been accused of abandoning the Turkish political tradition of secularism. This doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a cardinal sin in Turkish politics. He was also accused of dismantling democratic values and various human rights abuses, and it seemed that finally Turkish citizens had had enough of him. An estimated 300 people were killed as a result of skirmishes, aerial bombings, and riots throughout the country. The coup was ultimately unsuccessful, and the AKP pointed to Fethullah Gulen, a Turkish Muslim cleric residing in Pennsylvania, United States, as the leader of the attempt. However, because of the aftermath of the attack, some scholars and Turkish journalists began to suspect an inside job, orchestrated by Erdogan himself. 
Purges at all levels of Turkish society began to take place with the goal of rooting out conspirators, collaborators, and terrorists. Tens of thousands of people were detained. Thousands more were fired from their jobs as teachers, judges, lawyers, researchers, government workers, and others. Every university dean in the nation was either suspended or fired. 45% of the armed forces generals and admirals were detained. Thousands of prisoners were released just so they could house the new prisoners from this event. Almost 100 media outlets and publishers were ordered to shut down. Wikipedia was banned in Turkey. The Economist described the purges as akin to a counter-coup, where Erdogan could snuff out any semblance of dissent left in Turkey. This purge happened all thanks to one of an autocrat's greatest tools, a state of emergency. See, a state of emergency is the pinnacle of securitization. It's practically a suspension of the rule of law, where decisions can be made directly by the leader of a nation with little to no input from any other elected official. It's open season for new laws and regulations. As long as you can keep the state of emergency up, you have full authoritative control of a nation. You are the president, and all those who oppose you are enemies of the state. Erdogan kept up the state of emergency for two years after the coup attempt. In that time, his AKP party pushed through a massive constitutional amendment that gave Erdogan powers over the nation unlike any leader before him. An opposition leader remarked that the new laws made him a judge, jury, and executioner, with full control over the three branches of Turkish government. Turkey will never be the same because of it. States of emergency happen all the time in democracies when leaders can't get their way. In the United States, President Trump famously imposed one in order to secure funding for a border wall without approval from Congress, or the people, in extension. In India, the largest democracy on earth, a 21-month period dubbed the emergency was put in place by the late Prime Minister Indira Gandhi after a war with Pakistan and economic downturn. This allowed her to rule by decree. During this time, a massed forced sterilization campaign was conducted in India, and almost all opposition leaders and journalists were jailed. It's no secret that the state of emergency is the key to centralizing power. No one can oppose you. No citizen dares to speak out lest they be viewed by their peers as a traitor. It's compulsory allegiance. It works like a charm. We're on to the last step. By now, you have successfully stripped human rights from your citizens, silenced your opposition, and consolidated power. Congratulations! The ghost of Muammar Gaddafi told me he's very proud of you. It's time for the third and final step in your quest. Eternizing your rule. If they didn't think you were an autocrat before, <laughs> they'll know it now. You could keep prolonging your state of emergency, suspending elections until the invisible threat you've conjured is rendered non-existent. However, keeping up the charade indefinitely is not very efficient, nor likely to hold up for too long. Any suspension of term limits will have to go through the legislature, even in a state of emergency, and getting rid of a legislature is very difficult. However, since you already centralized enough power, you may have a shot. There is another way, and it's actually much easier. Call your friends. Using your political powers, you can elevate your allies, friends, family, and cronies into positions of immense power and influence. And if you can't get your friends around you to take on these positions, just make new friends. Oligarchs rarely say no to some extra power, and they can prove to be pretty useful friends.
You can use their immense resources to boost your regime as far as the eye can see. This is probably the most common aspect among varying authoritarian regimes and states because it just works so well. Give me control, Michael. I promise to give authority back to you when this crisis is over. Do it, Michael. Once your political party and group of cronies make up the majority influence in your government, congratulations again, you now have every ability to utilize a national emergency to declare martial law, suspend democratic processes, and remove term limits. You join the ranks of Viktor Orban of Hungary, Xi Jinping of China, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Donald Trump of the- oh wait, well that's, that's for a future episode. As well as many other autocrats around Central Asia and Africa. Don't forget to use your police state to crack down on dissidents, geopolitical rivals, and influence elections with the help of some notable tech firms. Cambridge Analytica? Facebook? I don't know. Take your pick. After all that hard work, it's now time to sit back and watch your country fall to its knees as you enjoy your newfound wealth and power. That is until your people suddenly and viciously turn on you, drag you into the street, and take revenge on all the nasty stuff you did. But that's not going to happen for a long time. Right? Thanks for listening to this episode of Authoritania. It's a fragile world out there, and autocracy lurks behind every corner. I'm Nick Jade. I've been your autocrat for today. I'll see you in the revolution. Thanks for listening to this episode of Authoritania. If you like this episode, please visit our Patreon page and consider supporting us at patreon.com slash authoritanium. Authoritania is written and hosted by me, Nikhil Jane, produced and edited by Kennedy Mangus, with music by Sloan Welsh. You can find more from Sloan at his Instagram at sloney underscore baloney. That's baloney with two Ys. I'm Nikhil Jane, and I've been your autocrat for today. I'll see you in the revolution. <laughs>